0: Good morning, Grace 180. My name is David Varghese, and I help to uh, shepherd uh, GBS, Grace Bible Study, that meets on campus with the legend Larry Brown and Angel Hernandez. Uh, Such a privilege, uh, my favorite part of the week, and it's such a privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 12 to 17. Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 12 to 17. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray once again, to ask for God's favor. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can call you Father. I thank you that we have that privilege as redeemed people. We can come to you and cry out, Abba, Father. What a great privilege. I pray that as we consider this passage more closely, that you would lift up our hearts in awe of who you really are, that we would be lifted up to worship you, and that you would call us to a greater repentance, and a greater obedience. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 17. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God These are sons of God, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. That we may be also glorified with him, when I think of my mom, I, I think of somebody who wears many hats. When I was younger, if I fell down and got injured, uh, she would be like a nurse to me, and she would bandage my wounds. If I was going through a hard time, my mom would be like a counselor to me, counsel me through the difficulties that I was dealing with as a troubled high schooler uh, and. You know, if I was hungry, she was a cook to me. She would make me great food and if I was disobedient, she would be a discipliner to me and beat me with the rod and, and discipline me. But most fundamentally and most essentially, when I think of my mom, uh, she's my mom. She's my mother. And when I think of God, I think of someone who wears many hats, so to speak. In Romans chapter one, Paul describes God as creator that God created the world and he has manifested his invisible attributes in the created order. And that is something natural, that is something intuitive, that is something that you get. You know that intuitively. In the same way that you know that there's a builder behind this building we're in right now, even though you've not met the builder, you just intuitively know that there was a builder behind the building. And similarly, you look at the created world around you, you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, the zebras, you know intuitively that there's a creator behind the creation. And then in chapter two, Paul reveals God is the lawgiver, that he's given us a conscience uh, that uh, sometimes excuses us and other times accuses us that when we're obeying the word of God, that we feel peace and joy. And other times when we're disobeying, you might feel anxiety and fear and depression. And so in this sense, he's a lawgiver, and the interesting thing there is the law of God, it, it's sufficient to damn it, but it can't save you. The fact that God is creator and the fact that he's lawgiver, everybody has access to that knowledge. Everybody knows it. Everybody naturally goes into the world as a creature in relation to the creator and, and as a law recipient to this lawgiver. Everybody experiences God in that way. And the knowledge of God as creator and the knowledge of God as a lawgiver is not enough to save you, only to damn you. And this was Paul's argument all along in the book of Romans. He was showing you the law, that the law is a good thing. The law is not a bad thing. The law is a good thing because it shows you your sin. It exposes the reality of sin in your life. And it shows you the righteous requirements of God. It shows you the character and the holiness of God. So you know that the law is a good thing. It shows you your sin, shows you the character of God, but it is weak. It has an inherent limitation, but because in and of itself, it cannot produce righteousness in you. The law can't produce righteousness in you. And if you break one of the laws, you end up breaking all of them. That's what James 2.10 says, that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of the law. And it's kind of like a mirror pane that if you took a pebble or a stone and you threw it at the mirror pane or the window, you don't just puncture the mirror at the point at which you threw the pebble you end up shattering the entire thing. And when you break one of God's laws, you break all of them in God's sight. And that's why Paul says in Romans 3.10 that there's no one good, there's no one righteous, there's no one who seeks for God, there's no one who does good, not even one. And then you see this glorious truth in chapter 3.21 that the righteousness of God was manifested apart from the law. And in Romans chapter eight, three, and four, you see that God, what the the law could not do, weak as it was, God did sending his own son in the likeness of human flesh. And as a sin offering, Jesus lived that perfect life that you and I could never live. He perfectly obeyed that law in our place. And it is upon saving faith in that Jesus that saves you from everlasting condemnation. That's why there's no condemnation. It is that faith in him that actually makes you a son of the living God. And it's that third way that we relate to God is as a redeemer. So the first way is a creator, a lawgiver, then as a redeemer. I think A couple of months ago at this point, I, I needed to get my, my license or my car renewed, and you need to do something called a smog test. And to this day, I have no idea what that means. But I failed the smog test, and they told me I needed to go to an auto mechanic. So I took the car to an auto mechanic, and then he connected my car to what they call a monitor and it was showing all these things wrong with my car that I didn't even know was wrong with my car. I had no idea. There's apparently a dozen things wrong with it and I had this bill at the end of $427. And there's no point of me being angry at the monitor because the monitor's only job is to simply expose what's wrong with my car. And I can't rely on the monitor to fix my car. That's not its job. It simply exposes the reality that there's something wrong. I can't fix the car because I know nothing about cars. This monitor can't fix the car because the monitor's job is only to expose what's wrong with the car. And so the auto mechanic has to go in and manually do what I could not do and what the monitor could not do. Jesus Christ does something similar. I could not keep the law because I was sinfully depraved. And the law can't produce righteousness in me but then God sent his son to live the perfect life. And upon saving faith in him, we're redeemed. Amazing truth. Galatians 3 even says that the saving faith makes you a son of God. That's the fourth way to relate to God as father, as a son of the living God. And it's amazing to me how many people kind of assume that we naturally come into this world as children of God, Even unbelievers might coin that language of a child of God or son of God. That is not natural. That is thoroughly supernatural. That the Holy Spirit has to regenerate you. Ephesians 2 even says that you were by nature a child of wrath. You don't come into the world naturally a son of God. That is something that the Holy Spirit supernaturally does in you. This Holy Spirit regenerates you. The Holy Spirit gives you the ability to believe in him. The Holy Spirit applies Jesus' perfect righteousness to you. And then the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you and then guarantees you everlasting resurrected life. Look at verse 11 of Romans 8. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit guarantees resurrected life. And it is this glorious promise that brings us to these six verses, verses 12 to 17. And so here's the key truth that I want you to take away. The key truth is right here, that the resurrection life promises new life, not only in the life to come, but in your life today. The resurrection life promises new life, not only in the life to come, but in your life today. That is to say that if you are guaranteed resurrected life, that is not just a future expectation, but a present reality. There should be a concrete, tangible effect of this future resurrected life in your life right now. And if you're not seeing these things in your life right now, you should call into question whether you're a true believer. You should be upset about your status before God. You should lack assurance if you don't see these things. But on the other hand, if you do see these things, you should be confident. You should have assurance. You should have joy and peace. In this passage, Romans eight twelve to 17, you're gonna see at least five ways. You could probably find more. Five ways that the spirit-given resurrected life should change your life right now. Five ways, and the first one is a new obligation. Look at the first phrase in verse 12, a new obligation. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. Literally, it's owing somebody something. It's, it's being indebted to somebody. Literally, the word is a debtor. That Paul is saying that we are debtors. If you go all the way back to Romans 1, he says, I am a debtor. I am under obligation to the Greek and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. And so for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. I'm unashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, and to the Greek. Paul designates himself as a debtor. And that might shock you a little bit because you might say, I thought Jesus paid my debt. I thought Jesus paid my debt. Why am I a debtor? I thought the gospel was free. Why does it cost me everything? Jesus did pay your debt. And the gospel is free. But I think of the hymn, Jesus paid it all. What's the next phrase in that hymn? Jesus paid it all. What's the next phrase? All to him I owe. This is a a profound sense of gratitude that comes from being saved graciously by Jesus. Like if on my way here, I was about to get slammed by some truck and I don't know if Wesley just jumped in and saved my life, I'm gonna feel a certain type of way towards Wesley. It's gonna change the way I act towards him because he just literally saved my life. It's not a debt of, of, uh, of pain or burden. It's a, it's a debt that comes from gratitude. And I was thinking of Augustus Toplady. He says this beautiful verse, a debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offerings to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from the view. I love those first two lines. A debtor to mercy, I sing. A debtor to mercy alone of covenant mercy, I sing. Beautiful line. Because that's not, a, that's not the kind of debt that makes you sigh. That's not the kind of debt that makes you feel, ah, oh, man, I got to serve Jesus Christ. Oh, that's, that's burdensome. That's beleaguering. It's not that kind of debt. It's not the kind of debt that makes you sigh. It is the kind of debt that makes you sing. It is a kind of debt where you want to serve Christ. And that's to give the scene in Luke 7. Jesus goes through Capernaum, goes through Nain, and he enters another village. And the Pharisees, they reject the purpose of God. They want nothing to do with him. And yet there's a couple Pharisees. There's one, Simon, who actually invites Jesus to his home for dinner. And so Jesus is reclining at Simon the Pharisee's home. He's eating dinner with him. And there's a prostitute in the area who hears about this. And it was customary in that time that you know if Jesus and some other public person, a famous person were eating. Anyone is kind of welcome to come in. You could sit on the side and listen in on the conversation. And so this prostitute comes in and she brings in an alabaster vial of perfume, very expensive. And she stands behind Jesus's feet and she's just weeping. And the word there is just, it's not the kind of single tear that you see in those films that's really cute and adorable. This is ugly crying. I mean, all the makeup coming out, I and mean, just, just ugly. She's just crying and weeping behind Jesus's feet and the tears from her face are falling upon Jesus's feet. And then she bends down, she takes her hair and she starts wiping the feet of Jesus. She takes the ointment, the alabaster vial, breaks it open, anoints Jesus's feet, massages it into his feet, and then takes the hair, mixes it and starts kissing his feet in front of everybody to see. That would have been a very humiliating thing to do. And everybody were looking with the condemnation and scoffing at her. And she was doing this right in front of everyone. And I was thinking to myself, that's so amazing. Like nobody commanded her to do that. There's no command in the Bible that says you need to engage in this magnanimous display of love. She did this because of her overwhelming sense of gratitude towards Jesus. Really amazing. That's the first way that the resurrection life should change your life. There's a second way. And that's with a new mindset. Look at the the last phrase in verse 12 to the end of 14. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. And this I titled a new mindset, a new mindset. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, when Paul uses that phrase of living according to the spirit or the flesh, rather, he's referring to that mindset where you think that you can somehow earn God's favor or earn a right standing with him by just being a good person, by just working really hard. That is not the way that you become righteous before God. We already talked about it being you trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, him imputing his righteousness to you. That is how you become righteous before God. It is not you cleaning up your act. It's not you trying to be a better person. It's not you reforming your character or behavior. I recall a pastor friend of mine, he was trying to define biblical repentance and he was saying, it's not just turning away from your sins, the bad things you do, but it's also repenting from the good deeds that you're trusting in, to earn a right standing before God. What are those righteous things you're doing where you're trusting in those things to save you, where you're trusting in those things to somehow earn the favor of God, where you're trusting in those good deeds to somehow curry the favor of God and gain acceptance, acceptance before him? Those are things you have to repent of as well. You see that phrase, living by the Spirit, Uh, I've read a lot of different things on this phrase, living by the Spirit, what that means. And really, it's nothing mystical. It's nothing sappy. It's nothing uh, esoteric. It's nothing, uh, nothing of a whisper. It simply boils into two simple things, two simple things to live by the Spirit. And the first is you receive, and these are two things you receive. You receive the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith. And the second is you receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So the first one is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. That imputed righteousness, that righteousness given to you from the spirit, from Jesus Christ to you, it acquits you of condemnation. That's why in 8.1, it says, therefore now there's no condemnation. You are totally free from condemnation. You don't have to feel like you're walking on spiritual eggshells your whole life. Whenever you sin, God has paid your debt in full. There's no condemnation for you. The imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ acquits you you're free, you're exonerated, you are liberated. Done. And then the imputed, or sorry, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit does something else. It then equips you for obedience. So the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ acquits you, and then the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit equips you, and equips you for the purpose of obedience. I think we have a watered-down understanding of the law. The law is not simply to prompt you to Christ. That's a good purpose of the law. It is a tutor that drives you to Christ. But then once you are saved, once you have received the righteousness of Christ and the Holy Spirit now takes up residence in you, the Spirit now enables you, empowers you, equips you to actually obey the law, to obey the scripture, to slay your sin and to pursue righteousness. That's one of the marvelous demonstrations of the Spirit actually living in your life. And if somebody asks you, what does it mean to be a child of God? What does it really mean to be an adopted son of the living God? I would say that the chief way you can mark that out is by your obedience. This is a person committed to obeying the word of God. This is a person committed to purging sin and pursuing righteousness. This is a new affection, a new desire that no unbeliever can have. Now I want you to see that phrase, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That's, that's the key phrasing here in verse 13. Putting to death the deeds of the flesh or the body. This is the purpose of why you were saved. Titus 2, 14, it even says, Jesus gave himself up to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself, to set apart, to consecrate a people for his own possession get it? Zealous for good works, zealous for good deeds. And the interesting thing is false teachers might reverse that. They might say, you got to be zealous for good works, and then Jesus might redeem you. No, you're zealous for good deeds as a fruit of having been redeemed by Jesus Christ, not as a root of it. Jesus Christ redeems you. Why? To purify you, to set you apart, to be zealous for good works, for obedience, for righteousness. And if you're a person zealous and committed to righteousness, you are evidencing the work of the spirit in your life. You're evidencing that Jesus has indeed redeemed you. And I think that's a great comfort to rest upon. You might also notice it says, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, that this is not something that's a one-time deal, that this is something ongoing, it's repetitive, it's regular, it's it's a constant part of the Christian life, this side of heaven. And I was noticing as I was even thinking about this, he says, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. He doesn't say to suppress the deeds of the flesh. He doesn't say to ignore the deeds of the flesh. He doesn't say to maybe decrease or diminish the deeds of the flesh. He says to put it to death, kill it, slay it, get rid of it completely. And there's no qualification. He doesn't say only just kill those big sins like sexual immorality. He says, put to death, the deeds of the flesh, all of them, unqualified. And I think that's important for us to think about because it's often those little sins, quote unquote, that lead to the big sins. That if you're not the kind of person killing and slaying those little sins in your life, I don't know what that is for you, but your mind is good at rationalizing sin. Whatever those little sins are in your life, you're called to put it to death if indeed you are born again by the Spirit. It's those little sins that often lead to the big ones. And I think of John Owen, he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Very important because nobody wakes up one morning and decides I'm gonna rob a bank. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, I'm gonna commit adultery with this person. Nobody slips into sin. You slide into it. There were so many moments of compromises before you ever reached that point. That is why you can do such an egregious act against God. And if there's not holiness, I think, leading up to that act, you're in a very dangerous situation. And I know that sounds sober. I know that sounds pretty harsh sounding. But here's the comfort. That if indeed you view life here as a spiritual warfare, if indeed you struggle against the deeds of the flesh, here's the comfort. You're evidencing that you're really a child of God. You're evidencing that you're really born again. Unbelievers, they don't care about that. They don't care about slaying sin. They care about living it up. You know, YOLO, you know, you only live once, live it up, have fun, you know, do whatever you want you want. You be the captain of your ship. Why let somebody else dictate how you live? But if you're the kind of person where you have a sensitive conscience, where you're genuinely desiring I want to pursue righteousness. I want to be holy before God. I want to kill this sin. I don't want to grieve God. You're evidencing the work of the spirit in your life, which no other human instrument can do other than the spirit of God. And that's amazing. And I think you should be assured by that. Let's look at the third way your life should be changed. If indeed the spirit of God has regenerated you and it will give you resurrected life, this is a third way that your life should be changed right now in the present. And it is a new fear. Look at verse 15 for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Martin Luther, he distinguished between two types of fear, Uh, fears that he called a servile fear and another fear he called filial fear. And the servile fear refers to the kind of fear that a prisoner, somebody accused, somebody in this jail cell might feel towards this dictator, this Hitler kind of person. You're terrified of that person. Whereas the filial fear that somebody might experience is this friendly fear. It's kind of like the fear that a child might have for the father. It's a a fear that is born out of reverence. And you know, as you survey the scriptures, there's two different types of fear, There's the sinful kind of fear that draws you away from God. And then there's the godly type of fear that draws you to God. And there's a big difference between those two things. The person who has that servile fear, this fear that drives them away from God, this is the kind of person when they sin, they're more grieved over the offense rather than the offended. They're more grieved over the fact that they did this thing that they didn't wanna do and it makes them look bad more than the fact that they sinned against a holy God, more than the fact that they grieved the one who saved them. That's a kind of an evidence that you have that wrong kind of fear. And I think of Spurgeon, he even talks about true prayer. He says that true prayer is not the noisy sound that clamoring lips repeat, but the deep silence of a soul that clasps Jehovah's feet. You see how personal that is? It's not this impersonal, rote, mechanical, mindless exercise of piety. You can see a lot of folks engaging in praying, maybe even praying and fasting all day, thinking that this will somehow accrue for them some kind of spirituality or righteousness or good standing before God. But it's impersonal. It's not directed towards God. It's not because they want to honor God. And I think a principle there that you want to think about is you want to beware the danger of disconnecting your practice of spirituality from the person of God. The moment you disconnect any practice from the person of God, what I mean by that is whenever you do anything, whether it's prayer or reading your Bible or anything, you want to be consciously thinking about the person of God. You want to do this as an act of service and reverence and love towards God and to benefit and love your fellow neighbor. And the moment you lose sight of that, you turn that good thing into something perverse and not something that God is pleased with. I think the beauty of being able to to draw yourself to God, that this, this genuine fear of the Lord, something that draws you to God rather than away from God is so amazing. Even when you sin, even when you're tempted, that even if you sin, say you do sin, what should you do in that moment? Should you be like, ah, I'm just this wicked sinner. What am I going to do? Should you just like mope in your room and feel really bad about yourself? If you're a genuine Christian, you don't need to warm up to God. You can immediately cling to him. Even when you know you've done this wicked thing, you can run to God. You don't need to run away from him and slowly warm up to him and gradually come back to the throne room of God's grace. You can come immediately to him. And that's actually a sign that the Spirit of God dwells in you is that you have this new instinct, this new reflex, this new impulse where even when you sin or you're tempted to sin or you're in this place of danger, you naturally and instinctively cry, Abba, Father, that He is the one that you run to. And I think that's so key because if you cry, Abba, Father, you're really distinguishing yourself from the world because the essence of false religion Is that it's relying on human achievement, not divine accomplishment. And when you cry, Abba, Father, you're you're evidencing you're depending on God to save you. You're depending on God to rescue you. You're not resting on your own merits, on your own righteousness. You're trusting in God. We know that the Spirit, if the Spirit lives in you, He frees you from the power of sin. But not necessarily the presence of sin. You will still see the presence of sin in your life, and so that's why I think it's sometimes helpful that if you see somebody, let's say you have a there's a struggling Christian, maybe you're that person. There's a sin in your life, and you feel, ah, man, you feel guilty, you feel ashamed. I don't think it's always helpful as a natural recourse, as a natural remedy to just say to somebody, "Ah, oh, you wicked sinner! How dare you look at that thing you shouldn't look at!" Sometimes I think the helpful thing to do is just simply remind that person of who they are in Christ, that you're a new creation, that you are born again, that you are a son of the living God, that you've been adopted into the family of God, that this is so unfitting. This is so unlike you. This shouldn't be present in your life. I was thinking of Ephesians 5.3. It says, let there be no sexual immorality even named among you because it is improper. It is unfitting for saints. It's like a dog mooing. How weird would that be? A dog mooing. Dogs don't moo. It's just not right. It doesn't fit. Doing that sin just doesn't belong in your life. In ancient folklore, they have this thing called the wild child or feral child. And I don't know if these stories are true, but there's a couple of stories where there's a kid who was raised by wolves for like the first 10 years of his life. And he's found by some human parents. They adopt him into their home And they start teaching him how to walk, how to talk like a human, how to bathe like a human, how to use the restroom like a human being, because he spent all these 10 years of his life living like a wolf. And he's so thrilled. He's part of this human family now. He's adopted, secured in this family, this human family. But every now and then, because he was grown and raised in this wolf, wolf land, he will sometimes revert to the wolf-like tendencies. Sometimes he will revert to his old man ways and he might feel discouraged. He might even tell himself, you know what? Maybe I am that wolf. Maybe I'm not a human being. And the parents, all they have to do is just show them a mirror and say, look at you. You're not a wolf. You're a human being. You're a new creation. And if you've been born again, and you've been adopted by God, it is improper, it is unfitting. You don't have to say yes to that sin. That every sin that you say yes to is a conscious, willful choice. But if you've been born again, you have a new obligation and with that new obligation, you have a new inclination so that you don't have to say yes to every whim of the flesh. You can say no, not by your own strength, not because Johnny is such a good kid, but because the Holy Spirit supernaturally empowers him to be able to actually say no to the whims of the flesh. No one believer can do that as much as they try. And that's why you're supposed to shine as lights in this dark and perverse world. I read this quote, very encouraging by John Bunyan. And the John Bunyan, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, John Bunyan, he, he had a very sensitive conscience. This was a guy whose conscience was very often dashed. He felt guilty under sin. He was ashamed a lot. He, he just didn't feel confident before God. He lacked assurance. I read this quote by John Bunyan that I found very profound. He says, one day, as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that when wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For it is always right before him. I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Christ. Incredible statement. Here you have a guy that if he sinned, maybe he'd feel discouraged. Maybe he'd feel doubt and lack of assurance. And the thing that encourages is knowing that my righteousness is in heaven. Jesus is my righteousness. That's why I'm going to heaven. Not because of anything I've done, but because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's my assurance. That's my hope. And that's my rest. Here's the fourth way that your life should be changed by the resurrection life. And that is a new comfort. Look at verse 16. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The testifying here is simply the, it refers to that new Spirit-given instinct, this new impulse that the Spirit gives you to cry, Abba, Father. What he, what he just mentioned in verse 15. That's a sign that the Spirit is working in you. But what I love about this verse, and I'm gonna read it again, is the fact that the Spirit is with you. I love that. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That was so encouraging to me as I was reflecting on this passage. You're not alone in the Christian life. You're not alone in the Christian walk, that the spirit of God is with you. He is with you. And I was thinking of Psalm 23 even, that the Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He brings you to the quiet waters and he restores your soul. But then in verse four, it says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I mean, what kind of shepherd would let a sheep walk through the valley of the shadow of death? And verse one says it's Yahweh. Yahweh is leading you to the green pastures. Yahweh is leading you to the quiet waters. Yahweh is restoring your soul. And yet in verse three, four rather, he allows you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What? And yet the comfort is that he is with you. I will not fear for your rod and staff, they comfort me. You are with me. And I think that's important for us to understand that Christ can be with you and the spirit is with you that doesn't mean your life is going to be free from pain. That does not mean your life will be free from trials. That doesn't mean you're going to be free from even great temptations in your life. But one of the greatest comforts and assurances you can have is knowing that Christ is with you, that the Spirit is with you, that you are not alone, and He empowers you to obey. And let's let's look at the last way that your life should be changed, and it's a new hope. The last way that the resurrected life in the future should currently presently change your life in a concrete way, it's a new hope. Let's look at verse 17. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also glorified with him. The hope that you see here is not just that you escape hell. The hope that you see here is not just the fact that you're going to escape the tyranny of hell. It's it's that you also expect heaven. That's something we have to look forward to. And it's this imperishable inheritance that we get to be with Jesus Christ finally. We can see him face to face. We can enjoy our God forever, know him face to face fully. And without any decrease, we can know him. That's something that we can look forward to. And you have that secured for you as an adopted child of God. In the first century, adoption in the Roman culture is very different than the way you might think of adoption today. But adoption in the first century Rome, it was more secure than biological status as a son. To be adopted, it was a very deliberate act. And it was a way that a parent might perpetuate their name and their inheritance. So to be an adopted child of God in first century Rome was to also have the security and also have this great inheritance waiting for you. And Even Julius Caesar, he adopted Octavian, who would eventually become Emperor Augustus. Great inheritance, great security, and there was no way you could remove that person from being an adopted child. Nothing they do would remove that status. You could do that with a biological son. You could disown a biological son, but not an adopted child. That once you are decidedly adopted, you are forever adopted. You are secured. And if you're an adopted child of the living God, your salvation is not going to be taken away. You can know that for certain that whether you're a good person or not, or maybe you sin here and there, that doesn't mean your salvation is called in question. Although, if if there is a if there's an unrepentant pattern of sin, maybe that's that's a sign you're not a Christian to begin with. But if you're a genuine Christian, if you have been adopted, it is secure and it will be not removed. I thought of Moses even in Hebrews eleven, that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter like, what folly? Like, how stupid is that? He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he would rather endure ill treatment with the people of God. He would rather endure ill treatment with the people of God than receive the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he knew that it was better to live for Christ. He knew he was looking to the reward of Christ. He thought the reproaches of Christ were better than all the treasures of Egypt he was looking towards this future inheritance. And that's that last conditional statement. I mean, look at that. It says, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. That if you look at this Christian life right now, it's not going to be free from suffering. That you can't get glory without this suffering right now. And you can see prosperity gospel folks, they're trying to twist that. They're trying to say you can live this prosperous life right now and somehow get glory. It doesn't work that way. That if you're a true Christian, you are somebody who's daily putting to death the deeds of the flesh. You are daily picking up your cross and following after Jesus Christ. And I think this is, one up, this is the one up that false religions might have on Christianity because they promise instant gratification. Why wait for sexual gratification? Why wait for money advancement? Why wait for that job promotion when you can grab it right now? When you can be instantly satisfied right now? Why wait? You with Christianity, there is a sense in which you are waiting for that future inheritance. You're waiting patiently, trusting in, and, and, and believing in the promise of God to come to pass. And I was thinking of, uh, in uh, Stanford, they had this marshmallow experiment. You guys probably have seen this. With the kids, like they, they uh, it's super cute if you haven't seen it. But like, they have this marshmallow experiment and they give each kid like a marshmallow And then they wait 10 minutes, and then you're supposed... If you wait 10 minutes and you don't eat the marshmallow, you get a second one. And if you do eat your marshmallow, you don't get a second one. And so then they give them a marshmallow, and then they leave the room, and there's a camera in there so you can watch them. It's just so funny seeing how much they love this marshmallow. They're they're really struggling over this marshmallow. It's just funny. Uh, And then they found out that the people who waited the 10 minutes and got the second marshmallow, they ended up doing better, and SAT scores went to better colleges, and et cetera, et cetera. But what I found so interesting about that was they they would put this marshmallow in front of the kid so that they could look at something tangible. They could look at something concrete and say, I'm going to get another marshmallow in 10 minutes. I'm looking at this for motivation. And the Spirit of God is something that's tangible. It's concrete in your life right now. You don't have to just wait in this darkness, in this cave hoping that maybe one day you'll get this inheritance in heaven, you will see a concrete, tangible impact on the way you live your life right now. You will see the spirit testifying with you, giving you peace, assurance, confidence, putting to death sin, all of these tangible visual displays that God is really working in you right now and that gives you more and more motivation for the future inheritance to come. It's incredible. So as I wrap up, I just want to, I want to close with what I began with. That these truths here are amazing because if the Spirit of God really lives inside of you, that is not something that you just die and then you wait for once you die. You can actually experience the power of the resurrected life right now, tangibly, concretely, right now. And so if you're seeing your life change in these ways that I just described, in these five ways, if you're seeing your life having these marks that's a sign of assurance for you You can be confident. You can be secure. You don't have to live in this mystical, dark doubt. You can be sure that you are going to heaven. You're going to receive this inheritance laid for you. If these five things are true for you. And then on the other side, if these things are not present in your life, if maybe you said a prayer and you're like, okay, I'm going to go to heaven now, but you're not seeing tangible change in your life right now, that should cause you to question whether you are really a believer. If your life is not tangibly changed right now, that's not a good sign. Probably not a sign that you're a true child of God. But here's the hope, that all those who cry to him and come to him, that he will give you new life. That if you humble yourself, come to him, he will give you new life. And you'll see your life changed even right now. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for the scripture, Romans 8. 12 to 17, just seeing the work of the Spirit and the lives of believers. I thank you that this is not just something we just look forward to in the future, uh, that it does have a present, concrete, tangible bearing on the way we live our life right now. Lord, I pray that even one thing would stick in the minds of these high school students, that uh, your Spirit would provoke them, uh, either to assure them or to afflict them, uh, that they might receive you and uh, pursue greater obedience.